I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. In today's reading, we'll be looking at all four of the Gospels. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 3, beginning with verse 1 down to chapter 4, verse 11. Mark chapter 1, the first 13 verses. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 22. And Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And finally, John chapter 1, verses 15 through 51. Now, the reason we're looking at all four Gospels today is because these contain parallel passages, the same story contained in four different Gospels. Now, these uh, passages include the following events. Uh, First of all, this is prior to the first Passover feast during the ministry of Jesus. Secondly, we find that John the Baptist prepares the Jews for the Messiah. And thirdly, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. Fourthly, Jesus calls his disciples. And then finally, we see that Jesus is tempted by Satan. So all of those are in the passages that we'll be looking at today. The following passages that we're getting ready to read here mark the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ. He goes to Jerusalem for his first Passover in John chapter 2, verses 12 to 25. And we'll be looking at those verses in just a few moments. The sequence of events that follow these passages may be found beginning in John chapter 2. Our reading today begins with John the Baptist. He was certainly different. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 10 in this section. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. And Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Now reading from Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair, and a leather girdle about his loins. And his meat was locust and wild honey, Then went out to him Jerusalem, and all Judea, and all the region around about Jordan, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid into the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Now we'll be looking at Mark's account, the first six verses of Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face which shall prepare thy way before thee. 
The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John did baptize in the wilderness, and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And they went out unto him all the land of Judea, and they of Jerusalem, and were all baptized of him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair, and with a girdle of skin about his loins. And he did eat locust and wild honey. Now, thirdly, the same account in Luke chapter 3, the first nine verses. Now, in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of Idorea, of the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene. Annas and Caiaphas, being the high priest, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father, for I say unto you, that God is able of those stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Every tree therefore which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Now let me just say that you really should take a look at the written commentary on these passages on BibleTrack.org. I've taken those three passages as well as others in today's reading and placed them side by side comparing verse with verse with verse so that you can see the color that one author fills in that the other two may have not uh, been so detailed with. So it's, um, it's, it's quite enlightening to look at the comparison side by side. John the Baptist was born six months before Jesus. In this passage, we see the purpose of John the Baptist's ministry manifested as the forerunner of Jesus, the Messiah. Although Mark chapter 1 verse 2 is taken from Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, the detailed verses following are taken from Isaiah. He had prophesied of the coming Messiah and restoration of Israel in Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 is quoted here in reference to the Messiah. When John the Baptist quotes Isaiah, he does so in Matthew chapter 3 3, Mark chapter 1 verse 3, and Luke chapter 3 verse 4. When John the Baptist quotes Isaiah, it's clear to his listeners that he's introducing Jesus as the Messiah. Also, notice the call that John makes according to Matthew chapter 3, 2, when he says, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You cannot understand the Gospels without understanding specifically what the kingdom of heaven really is. Remember this definition. The kingdom of heaven is the literal establishment of the Messiah ruling over all the earth. It's not a vague reference to believers going to heaven when they die. It is literally the messianic promise of the Old Testament prophets being fulfilled. Luke continues his account in verses 5 and 6 by citing two additional verses from Isaiah chapter 40, and those two verses are verses 4 and 5. 
John quotes those verses that day. Now you'll notice that Luke's account has something that the other two don't. Luke alone is quite interested in lending his readers a leadership perspective. He wants his readers to know who's who with regard to the leadership in Judea and surrounding areas. He does just that in Luke chapter 3 verses 1 and 2. The religious system under the Sadducees and Pharisees, it, well, it was a mess. Their standards of righteousness were superficial and their religious system was not open to change at all. Then here comes John the Baptist. Nothing conventional about him whatsoever. He dressed weird, had an unusual diet, and he's calling upon them to repent. Literally, he's calling upon them to turn to God. What? They thought they had a corner on God. This could be trouble. John makes it worse when he calls the Sadducees and Pharisees, listen to this, a generation of vipers. He does so in Matthew 3, 7 and Luke 3, 7. He adds this, and don't tout your ancestry back to Abraham. You need to repent. So what was this John's baptism all about? Now, it was a custom among the Jews to require proselytes to Judaism to be baptized. John's baptism is not a picture of today's believer's baptism, not at all. I've heard preachers refer to John's requirement that they bring forth fruit, in other words, actions, meet or worthy of repentance, prior to their baptism as being the same standard for new believers today. These preachers require a waiting period before they will baptize new converts. They want to make certain that these new converts live the appropriate lifestyles before they get baptized. They base this requirement on John's words in this passage. Peter required no such thing on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verses 38 to 41. To make such a requirement is to take Scripture completely out of context. John had already addressed their wickedness and was now calling upon them to turn from that wickedness and be baptized. Their pride of heritage in being the children of Abraham simply was no substitute for individual authentic relationship with God. So, what exactly do they need to do? Well, now we'll read from Luke chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. And the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answereth and saith unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise. Then came also publicans to be baptized, and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed you. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. And as the people were in expectation, and all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were Christ or not. Now here's what we know. John the Baptist knew their corrupt condition. A relationship with God ought to foster positive attitudes toward others. In Luke chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, in that passage we just read, John gives us a record of the specifics to their question. What shall we do then? These suggestions were by no means meant to be a comprehensive plan for salvation for these people, but merely a declaration to expose their wrong attitudes toward God and to demonstrate what will follow when a person authentically seeks to please God with his life. 
getting their hearts right with God would serve to make them receptive to the first advent of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. In the next section, we're going to see the concept of being baptized by the Holy Ghost. First, let's look at Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. John, speaking here, says, I indeed baptize you with water into repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chafe with unquenchable fire. Now we'll look at Mark chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, the same account. And preach, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And finally, Luke's account in Luke chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. John answered, saying unto them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I cometh the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor, and will gather the wheat into his garner, but the chafe he will burn with unquenchable fire. So John makes the differentiation. He's baptizing in water those who repent. However, he's introducing Christ. Of course, Christ is the English transliteration for the Greek word Messiah. Christos means Messiah. He'll do a supernatural baptism when he comes, a baptism by the Holy Ghost. Ghost and spirit, by the way, come from the exact same Greek word, which is pneuma. John also mentions fire and a fan. Well, it's an agricultural analogy. The fan, the winnowing fork, was used to sift the chafe from the wheat, and the chafe was burned in the fire while the wheat was preserved. Get the picture? The Messiah, through the power of the Holy Spirit, will accurately separate believers from the wicked. And the wicked, well, that's kind of self-explanatory, don't you think? Hey, John, that kind of preaching can land you in prison if you're not careful. And we see in Luke chapter 3, verses 18 to 20, that in fact it did land him in prison. And that's our next passage to read, Luke chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. And many other things in his exhortation preached he unto the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, being reproved by him from Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, added yet this above all, that he shut up John in prison. Well, I guess everybody understands that when a preacher ruffles the feathers of the influential, well, bad things come with the good. This time it's a woman, Herodias, who's not a fan of the message that John's been preaching at all. Here's why. Herodias had been married to a guy named Philip, who was the half-brother of Herod the Tetrarch. Now, here's the deal. Herodias left Philip, well, for Herod. Philip and Herod were sons of Herod the Great, the man who had attempted to orchestrate the death of the Messiah by having the babies murdered after the birth of Jesus. John's preaching here is very convicting to Herod and Herodias because of their disdain for the marriage vows. So John the Baptist is imprisoned as a result. After only a few months of preaching that introduced Jesus as the Messiah, 
the preaching ministry of John the Baptist came to a close. John remained in prison until he was beheaded in Matthew chapter 14, verses 3 through 12, where we get that account. In the next passage of Scripture, we find three accounts, that of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where we see that Jesus arrives to be baptized. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and cometh out to me. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Suffer to be so now. For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now for Mark's account in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And finally Luke's account in Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened. And the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. Well, why should Jesus feel the need to be baptized? When John brings up that point, Christ replies, For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. It's important to understand this baptism of Jesus. Was he baptized with water unto repentance, as John the Baptist was pleading for the people to do? Well, no. Absolutely no. Jesus was sinless. He was perfect. He had nothing to confess or repent from. Well, then why was he baptized? Here's what I think is meant by Jesus' baptism being executed to, as it says, fulfill all righteousness. Old Testament priests were washed with water and anointed with oil as part of the sanctification process for the priesthood under Aaron. That was according to Leviticus chapter 8, verses 6 through 36. We see in Hebrews chapter 7 that Jesus was and is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. I'm convinced that the same ritual observed under Aaron is observed supernaturally here with John the Baptist and Jesus. John baptizes Jesus, the priestly washing. Then instead of being anointed with oil, God actually sends a dove to light upon him while God utters these words, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This baptism by John was necessary to fulfill the law regarding priests. In other words, to fulfill all righteousness. Here's another important point about baptism. We are not baptized because Christ was baptized. Our baptism is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's clearly laid out in Romans chapter 6. This baptism by John marked the beginning of Christ's earthly ministry as our great high priest. Oh, by the way, the words of God saying, Thou art my beloved Son in whom I will please, these words undoubtedly reminded those who heard the voice of, of Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. 
Psalm 2, 7 says, I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Psalm 2 was recognized by the Jews of that day as a messianic psalm. Now that brings us to the Gospel of John. We looked at verses 1 through 14 previously, but now we'll begin with verse 15. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake, he that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness of all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father. He hath declared him. Now in this passage, we see John contrasting the message of Christ as being one of grace and truth, while the message of Moses was one of law. It's important to take note that this distinction was made at the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ. We see it all through the Gospels. Verse 18 is sort of curious here. It says, No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. I'm convinced that any form of God ever seen by man was a manifestation, in fact, of the only body the Godhead ever had that of Jesus Christ himself. Now, I've written an article on Melchizedek in Hebrews chapter 7, who I think was a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus. And uh, that's under topics on the main page of BibleTrack.org. John makes the very same statement in 1 John chapter 4, verse 12. In both passages, John seems to be making a distinction between Jesus incarnate and God in his essence, his spirit being. Jesus later proclaims to the Samaritan woman that God is a spirit. That's in John chapter 4, verse 24. In our next segment, we see that we're going to be identifying the prophet and the Messiah. Verse 19 of John chapter 1. And this is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then, art thou Elijah? And he saith, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, No. Then said they unto him, Who art thou, that we may give answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. And they asked him and said unto him, Why baptizest thou then? If thou be not that Christ, nor Elijah, neither that prophet. John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you, whom you know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latchet I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. Well, the Pharisees, we see in verse 24, sent some priests and Levites out to interrogate this wild-looking man, John the Baptist, who was preaching and baptizing. We're told in verse 28 that this incident takes place on the Jordan River at Bethabara, about 18 miles east of Jerusalem. Now, take a comparative look at two verses. First of all, look at John chapter 1, verse 23. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. Now notice Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. 
the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Well, as you can plainly see, John professes to be the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, a prophecy also made in Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, and again in Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6. This was concerning the coming of the Messiah. Now here's the confusion. These priests and Levites are familiar with Malachi's prophecies. It appears from this passage that the Pharisees differentiated between Elijah of Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, and the messenger that we find in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. We see that in verses 21 and 25. So they reason if John the Baptist is introducing the Messiah and the Messiah is here to judge the nations and establish the throne of David, then John the Baptist must be Elijah according to Malachi. But John says he's not Elijah in verse 21. Well, was he or wasn't he? The answer is this. He could have been. You see, Malachi's prophecy looked all the way into the millennium. When John the Baptist and Jesus came, the Jews did have an opportunity to receive Jesus as their Messiah. And that would have ushered in the rule of Israel over the earth under the Davidic throne. However, it had been prophesied that they would reject, and Christ knew that in advance as well. Well, of course he did. Therefore, John the Baptist would have fulfilled the Malachi prophecy had the Jews readily accepted the Messiah, but they did not. So John was not Elijah, and that's, of course, what he said. For a full explanation of the identity of John the Baptist, see the article that I've written entitled was John the Baptist Elijah, and you can find that on the written page of the commentary for today's reading. Then we find that John gives his testimony regarding Jesus in verses 29 to 34 of chapter 1. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore I come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, of on whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bare record that this is the Son of God. From the wording of verse 29 here, it would appear that the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist had already occurred on a previous day. Now it's time for John the Baptist's personal testimony regarding Jesus himself in verses 30 to 34. He indicates that God himself had told him to be on the lookout for the dove and a voice from heaven miracle which occurred at the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3 verses 13 to 17 and uh, the other account, Mark 1, 9 through 11, and Luke 3, 21 and 22. When he saw the miracle, he knew without question that Jesus was, in fact, that Messiah. In John chapter 1, verses 35 to 51, we find the calling of the disciples. Verse 35. Again the next day after John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. 
Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and saith unto them, What seek ye? They say unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted master, where dwellest thou? He saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt, and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. When Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee, and findeth Philip, and saith unto him, Follow me. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip findeth Nathanael, and saith unto him, We have found him, of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So here we have John's account of the circumstances around the calling of four of the twelve apostles. We see Andrew, and then Simon Peter, and then we find Philip, and then finally Nathaniel. Incidentally, in this passage right here, Jesus assigns Peter an Aramaic name, Cephas, which means rock. The Greek equivalent for Cephas, by the way, is Petros, which is translated into our English Bibles, Peter. We find the whole list of the twelve disciples in Mark chapter 3, verses 16 through 19, and those are as follows, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot. In John chapter 1, verse 41, it's interesting to see that Andrew sought out his brother Peter to inform him that he'd found the Messiah. Here we see also the definitive statement that Christ means Messiah. Philip confirms this finding in verse 45, but with an additional comment that's worth noting. He points out that this is the Messiah of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write. Of course, we're all aware of the numerous Old Testament prophecies from the prophets concerning the coming Messiah. But what about this reference to Moses? It's obvious from this reference that the Jews of Jesus' day understood Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 19 to be a prophecy of the coming Messiah. Now let's take a look at the words of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 19. They're quite significant for this occasion. Now, Deuteronomy 18:15, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, and of thy brethren like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. 
according to all that thou desirest of the Lord thy God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, neither let me see this great fire any more that I die not. And the Lord said unto me, They have well spoken that which they have spoken. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. Now I find this passage interesting in two respects. First of all, I feel relatively certain that the Israelites to whom this prophecy was given must have thought Moses was talking about Joshua who succeeded him after his retirement. That description certainly fits Joshua, of course. However, Philip believes what apparently many, if not all, or virtually all, Jews in his day believed, that Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 19, was a direct reference to the coming Messiah. To make this discussion more interesting, consider this. Jesus is a Greek transliteration for the Hebrew name Joshua. So just as Joshua led Israel into Canaan, so will Jesus, Joshua, lead Israel into the millennium. We do find that Jesus, after his resurrection, confirms that Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 19, which we just read, is a reference to himself. He says so in Luke chapter 24, verse 27. Here's what he said. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. Now, for a more comprehensive look at this issue, consult the information box that I have on the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today's reading. And let's see the article entitled, Moses Prophesied the Messiah. I have all the details there. Now, verse 46 is amusing as well when Nathan questions Philip regarding Jesus, when he says, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Hey, what do you have against Nazareth, guys? Well, probably being aware of Jesus' Bethlehem roots at the time, it was a fair question. I mean, a Messiah from Nazareth, way up north in Israel? Jesus' very first words to Nathanael are an interesting play on words when he says of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Jesus is undoubtedly making a reference to Isaac's words concerning Jacob in Genesis chapter 27, verse 35. Here's what that passage says. And he said, Thy brother came with subtlety and hath taken away thy blessing. The word subtlety there is the equivalent of guile. When Nathanael wonders how Jesus was able to make such a correlation, having just met him, Jesus reveals to Nathanael in verse 48 that he had a vision of Nathanael under a fig tree. As we see in verse 49, that settles it for Nathanael. Now we come to the temptation of Christ as seen in Matthew chapter 4, Mark chapter 1, and Luke chapter 4. First of all, reading Matthew chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterward and hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple. And saith unto him, Thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, 
He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of them. And saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. Now in Mark's gospel, chapter 1, he only devotes two verses to it. Here's what he says in verse 12. And immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beast, and the angels ministered unto him. Now Luke gives a fuller account in the thirteen verses of Luke chapter 4, verse 1. And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness being forty days tempted of the devil, and in those days he did eat nothing. And when they were ended, he afterward hungered. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command the stone that it be made bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, That man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And he brought him to Jerusalem, and set him on a pinnacle of the temple. And said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee, to keep thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou shalt dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. Well, of course, Satan is determined to discover the credentials of Jesus as well. After all, and keep this in mind, Satan is not omniscient. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 clearly characterized the nature of the Messiah. Here's what it says. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So since Satan isn't omniscient, I'm guessing this episode is Satan's attempt to see exactly what he's dealing with here. He wants to know, is Jesus God in the flesh or isn't he? If Jesus will succumb to temptation and sin, in other words, abandon his messianic mission, then he's not the promised Messiah. Now you must keep in mind again, let me say it one more time, Satan is not omniscient, nor is he omnipotent, nor is he omnipresent. However, he does know the scripture and has talked with God, but he's not omniscient. Contrary to popular belief, 
He can't even read your thoughts. So Satan is using the conventional method of Messiah testing in this passage of Scripture. Results? Well, Jesus is 100% Messiah, God in the flesh, and he won't perform any parlor tricks to obtain the big prize from Satan. By the way, these temptations placed before Jesus, uh, they follow 40 days of fasting. It's worth noting here that these 40 days match those of Moses when he ascended to Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 24, verses 12 to 18. As a matter of fact, we are told in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 9, that Moses also fasted for these 40 days and 40 nights. I think it's interesting to note that despite being God in the flesh, Jesus quotes scripture as he combats the temptations of Satan. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, he says, And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Now, incidentally, that's quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Then in verses 5 through 7, it says that the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Here Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. And finally we see in Matthew 4, 8, Again the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of them. And saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And these words are taken from and quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20. So you see, Jesus, in all three occasions, quoted Scripture himself. Now it's interesting to note, however, that Satan himself quotes a little Scripture in this verbal duel. In verse 6, when he says, For it is written... He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. That's a quotation, by the way, from Psalm chapter 91, verses 11 and 12. It just goes to show you quoting scripture out of context is something that even Satan does. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walton.